Part of what it means to be a human is to have a body. And one of the consequences of having a body is that time matters. We organize our lives as humans with bodies into days and seasons and years. Now, every culture develops rhythms, rhythms that we call in our sophisticated post-enlightenment culture calendars. Now, some people live according to the rhythm of the Hallmark calendar. Or maybe you live by the rhythm of our national calendar. Court Square Coffee lives by the rhythm of the courthouse. If it's open, he's open. If it's closed, he's closed. When you're in school or your kids are in school, it's easy to live by the rhythm of the academic year, right? The fall semester, Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, uh, the spring semester with its spring break and then end of school. And do you remember that feeling on the last day of school, the glorious freedom of summer? Can you just feel that? My wife loves summer. She can long for it even now, feeling it. And I'm like, bring on the winter. Go through summer leading us back to the energy and the excitement of the new year. Some of you live by the hunting calendar. You can feel in your bones when it's deer season, right? Or possum season, whatever you like to hunt. (laughs) Some of you live by the sports calendar, spring training. That means something to you deep in your... You can can smell it, right? Uh, Somebody I was talking to recently, they were walking through town and um, the fall leaves and the smell in the air, it triggered to them Saturday football games, watching UVA play and tailgating. If you're a farmer, the rhythm of your year is influenced by seasons of planting and harvesting. When Janelle and I lived in New Orleans, we moved by that most biblical of all rhythms, the New Orleans calendar, Mardi Gras, to Jazz Festival, to the Sugar Bowl. Now, as Christians, we've got skin in this game called time. We believe that God did not, he not only created you and me, He created everything, including time. He made time. Time begins with God and it pivots around God. Now, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 12. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Um, I realize you might not have one with you. I encourage you, um, if you worship with us, to find one. Hotels, donate them. They're in the drawers right beside the bed. Bring it to church. And here's the reason why. The Bible is really complex. It's hard to to learn. And the only way to really learn the Bible is to get, to jump into it and start moving around in it. And this is every Sunday you've got a chance to kind of get familiar with the Bible. Exodus 12. Look with me at the first verse. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month... Shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God had gotten deeply involved in the history of the people that we now called, call Israel. And, and, and one of the things he did with Israel was he miraculously, powerfully, overwhelmingly intervened in their life when they were slaves to Egypt. And he delivered them from slavery to Egypt. Now, next to the moment of creation in the Bible, 
This was the most monumental, the most defining moment in God revealing himself. So God said to Israel, and this is so important for us, shift your whole calendar. Can you see it in this verse? From now on, this particular month starts your year. Now, that's a fairly audacious claim, right? To step into a group of people who've got history and they've got rhythms and they've got a calendar and say, scrap it. Okay, you're used to starting your year here. Now I want you to start your year here. And I want your year to begin on the anniversary of me rescuing you as slaves out of Egypt. Notice verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Story goes on. Drop down to verse 14. And this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. So, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, God says, start your year on the anniversary of the Exodus, the rescuing you out of Egypt. And in verse 3, he begins to lay out a ritual that Israel was to practice every year In order to remember this really important thing. So he not only says start your year here. He says and do it with this ritual that I give you. And if you keep reading. You'll see that God gives Israel a whole series of rituals and festivals. Some of them were feast. Some of them were fasts. And each one though was dedicated to a specific powerful historical event. That God had done In the life of Israel. So by going through the year. What Israel did was. They had a rhythm to their year. Their rhythm wasn't hunting season. Their rhythm leveraged. The planting and harvesting season. And calibrated it. Around the acts. The events of God. In Israel's history. And by going through this year. And participating in these calendar moments and these rituals and these feasts and these festivals and this fasting, they're remembering and they're passing on the story of what God has done to their children. The year became the powerful framework in which they taught who God was, but get this, based on what God was doing in their history. And secondly, about this calendar business, by practicing the year in this way that God told them to, in a mysterious way, they were actually participating in the life of God. Now, I don't have time to go into that this morning. It's enormous and it's very important. But by doing these rituals and by following the calendar that God gave them, he was not only educating them, he was drawing them in to the life that was the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now, there comes a moment in the life of Israel where God does something that trumps everything. He incarnates himself in one person, Jesus Christ, by whom he intends to save all people. Now, this drama, the drama of Jesus Christ that unfolds in the New Testament, it does something with that calendar God had given Israel. 
It takes all of those rituals, all of those events, and it reveals that they were not just looking back to what God had done. They were all pointing to Jesus Christ to fulfill all of them. Now, when Jesus comes along and this calendar, this rhythm of feast and fasting, of, of events, remembering what God had done, suddenly it's seen in a new light. It's seen through Jesus Christ who fulfills not only the teachings of the Old Testament, but the actual events of the Old Testament. That the events of the Old Testament in the hand of the Lord of time prefigured the life of Jesus Christ. In other words, the God who is writing time inscribed events to foreshadow latter events. Just like an author who is the Lord of his book can write scenes and events to foreshadow latter scenes. History is his Story, And he's inscribed not only prophecies, but events to point to an ultimate climactic event, the event of Jesus Christ. So all of these feasts and festivals, suddenly they direct our gaze so that we can see Jesus for who he truly is. It's a circular thing. Jesus helps us see all of those events for what they really are. But knowing the events helps us see Jesus for who he really is. Now the only way into that circle is to just jump into it. Jump in. Take Jesus for who he is. Let the Old Testament sharpen who he is. Which lets you see him better. Which lets you see the Old Testament better. So with Jesus Christ. These This calendar is fulfilled. And over the first few centuries of the life of the church, the church said, now what are we going to do with the calendar? And so Christians from a wide variety of cultures, as time went by, they did not stop living by a calendar because that's impossible. To be human is to have a body. To have a body is to be shaped by time. To be shaped by time, you will form rhythms to your life. So what did the Christians do? They were used to having a calendar shaped around the mighty events of of God in history. They live on the other side of the mightiest event of God in history. The drama of Jesus Christ. So they did the most logical thing. They calibrated their calendar to the life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So over the first few centuries of the church, they didn't stop living by a religious calendar. They recalibrated their calendar. They developed a Christ-centered choreography to their year. Now our church follows this calendar that developed over the first few centuries of the life of the church... And now it's practiced around the world by Christians of, of, you know, this wide variety of stripe. uh, Catholic and Anglican and Presbyterian, Lutheran and Orthodox. And our church follows this calendar. And and we follow it so that why? Because you're going to live by a calendar. Either you pick it or it will pick you. Either you pick it. I mean, if you get to pick between the life of Jesus bending the shape of your year or Hallmark bending the shape of your year. You know, as a priest, I'm required to tell you, pick Jesus, right? (laughs) 
or hunting season or whatever. God had taught Israel over many, many centuries that your calendar is fundamentally formative to your life. So it's not a rule to live by the church calendar. It's just wise. Now, notice in a few minutes, we're going to recite the Nicene Creed. We're going to talk about Jesus, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified and died and was buried and descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. These are the events that shape the Christian calendar. Now, for much of our culture, the season we're in right now is the beginning of Christmas, right? Christmas starts showing up with the ghost of Halloween in our stores, right? Halloween ghost and Christmas trees and Christmas gifts. are all, the, the, the beginning of the Christmas season is where we are in our culture. But for Christians, for Christians who follow the calendar, like the, this is like a lot of other issues... We're just out of step. We're just marching to the beat of an entirely different drum. You see, if we're going to orient our lives by the church calendar, this moment of time that we're in right now, it's not the beginning of the Christmas season. Christmas is 12 days. And the first day of Christmas is sundown on Christmas Eve. And then it goes for 12 days. 12 days of Christmas starts there and goes forward. And right now, we're in Advent. Beginning from today, the fourth Sunday prior to Christmas, that's when Advent begins. That's when the Christian year begins. Beginning from now, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, until sundown on Christmas Eve, we're in the season of Advent. And Advent is to Christmas like Lent is to Easter. It's preparation. It's not, we haven't got there yet. We live in a culture that wants instant gratification. So it wants all its Christmas parties now. It wants all the Christmas festivity now. It doesn't want to go through the hard work of preparation. We live in a culture that doesn't want engagement. It just wants to move in. Right? We live in a culture that time and time again wants what it wants now. But, but the wise way of living is to go through alternating seasons of fasting and feasting. Preparing and celebrating. Advent. This is a season for self-examination. Or repentance. Now that makes for a very different experience. Than it does for those who are moving to the rhythms of our giant culture machine of consumerism. Gone nuts. And this engine that drives our culture. This engine that runs on consumption and accumulation and self-indulgence. Man alive is this engine working right now at this moment in our culture. It's cranking at this time of the year. And so it co-ops Advent. And it twisted into something that can get pretty crazy. And whichever season you pick will shape you. Pick Advent or yield to the dominant season of the culture. It will shape you. It will make you into something on a deep subterranean level. Like gravity on the top horizontal board of a fence. As years go by, bends it. Your seasons will bend you. They will shape you. But here, in the wisdom of the church, it calls us at this moment to get offbeat with the world. To get out of rhythm. 
The season of Advent is not a time of self-indulgence, but of repentance. Advent is a time where we cry out to God, not to satisfy our consumeristic desires, not to bless us in our celebration, but to shake us out of our complacencies. Look, if you've been around our church very long, you know that we are shameless in our celebrating. We party, we celebrate, we feast. This is not some platonic, Gnostic, anti-having-fun kind of move. This is about how you rhythm your life. Now, the season of Advent is about a cry to God to shake us out of whatever complacencies have set up residence in your life over the past seasons, past months and years or so. Now, this brings us to our Old Testament reading for this morning, Isaiah 64. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to find that book, Isaiah 64. And while you're turning there, we need to back up just a moment. One of the problems... One of the great gifts of being Anglican is we read scripture in service. One of the problems is we have these different readings, the Psalm, the Old Testament, the Gospel, the New Testament. And because these are all dipping into moments in a story, they're in different places, different contexts. It can be hard to get your bearings. Wait a minute, I just heard this and now I'm hearing that. It's like opening a book at random and reading various passages and not really knowing. the. If you don't know the whole story, if you don't know the, the thing that holds the story together, then it can be rather disorienting. So let me back up and give us a a, a picture here so that we can hear Isaiah 64 for what it really is. Over the past three months, we've seen that the entire enormous story of the Bible hinges around Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 12, the one and only true God enters into a covenant with one person, Abraham. And he binds himself to Abraham and in sheer grace binds himself not only to Abraham but to all of his offspring. And he says to them, through you I will heal the world. I'll restore the world. I'll rescue God's beautiful creation that's been broken and is now infected by two things. Evil and death. In other words, evil and death aren't original. They're parasites. You should hate them. Death should make you scream. And evil should bother you. Because they're abnormal. They don't fit. They're imposters. And God promised. He binds himself to Abraham and to his offspring. And says, through you, I'm going to kick out the imposters. I'm going to get rid of evil and death. And the way the creator is going to rescue his creation from evil and death. And restore this creation. Not destroy it, restore it. Not take us away from it, but heal this creation. The way he's going to heal this creation and so that it, that it returns to a state of flourishing and wholeness and beauty and justice. The way he's going to do this is through Israel, the offspring of Abraham. But when you keep reading the Old Testament, you scratch your head or pull your hair or whatever you do. Because Israel, the solution, is evil, wicked, filled with death and death-creating habits. Israel, the solution, is part of the problem. So how do you, how do you heal cancer 
when the, the tool you've got is cancer. You see the conundrum of the old? You're supposed to scratch your head all the way through the Bible. You're supposed all the way through the Old Testament. You're supposed to say, no, wait a minute. I thought this was the solution. But when I read the solution, it's the problem. You see, Israel, through the pages of the Old, old Testament, is this grumbling, rebellious, malcontented people. Israel, called by God to be God's promise-bearing people, the light to the nations, show every sign of being darkness themselves. And this is where we are in the reading of the story this morning. We're right at that moment. Israel in her darkness, who is supposed to be the solution. So listen with me to Isaiah 64. Let's start right in the middle in verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Think about the references in these two verses. Garments, leaves, wind. Same word as breath, same word as spirit. These images, they put us right back into the garden. Adam and Eve after their sin. Those are the dominant images. So what we see is that Israel, the solution to Adam's sin, has become a new Adam. Whose garments, like Adam and Eve, do not cover them in the presence of the Spirit of God. But there's more. There's a progression in these verses. First, Israel is unclean. It's from the language about lepers with their skin diseases. Which made them ritually unclean in Israel. Then that image is intensified by comparing even their best acts, their righteousness, to a minstrel cloth. And then it all culminates in the image of a withering leaf. Can you feel these evocative images? Sin leads not just to pollution, but to a loss of vitality. Israel is drained of life. She's like a dried leaf. Sin leads to a loss of vitality, a loss of life. In persistently sinning, Israel has lost the source of its existence. It's like a leaf coming off of the tree. It's no longer connected to the source of life. And so what does sin do? It disconnects us from the source and it leads to our withering. In the Bible, sin is not, first of all, behavioral dysfunction. It is an offense against the nature of life. Which means finally in the end, death, decay. So this image of a fading leaf, this goes beyond the previous two images. The image of the the leper or the minstrel cloth. Because a leper can be cleansed and a dirty garment can be washed. But withering and fading leaves, that is irreversible. There is no fixing of that. You cannot revivify. It's done. So what about you? Will you slow down and consider that the sins in your life pollute you? But even worse than that, they disconnect you from the source of life. And that is a one-way street. See, that's what Advent tells us to do. It says, stop. 
Stop taking your sins and God's grace for granted. And believe the biblical account for which there is ample historical evidence that sin disconnects us from the source of life. You see, this is Advent. Now is the time to slow down. Our culture says, add, add, add during this season. Busier, busier, busier. Louder, louder, louder. The church says, wait, that's the opposite of what we should do right now. Slow down. Are you finding ways to do that over the next four weeks? Are you going to take away from your calendar or are you going to add to it? Are you going to put concrete ritualized practices into your life that force you to reflect on your life? You know, that's what funerals do, right? Funerals, they force you to take stock. You go to funerals and suddenly you think deep thoughts about yourself and you reflect on yourself. Parties, that's a different mode of living. There's going to be a place for that. We will unleash that. We'll beg each other to come into it. We'll invite each other into it. But for the next four weeks, it's more like a funeral. It's to stop. It's to slow down. To be reminded that sin is serious death-inducing business and to find it in our lives. But there's more. Look at verse 7. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. This is what Israel's ongoing sin has done to her. Lethargy. Spiritual lethargy. Not only are they disconnected, they're, doing, they're not even trying to resist it. They're not even getting up out of the bed. They're not rousing themselves. They don't make attempts to reestablish contact with God. This is what sin does to you. It, it just lulls you to sleep. See, that's why we've got to have a culture like a church to give us cultural practices that kind of slap us to wake up and say to us, stop, 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 rouse yourself. In other words, this will not happen naturally. Spiritually, Israel is asleep. What about you? Are you asleep in your sins? Have you grown lethargic with the sin in your life? And there at the end of verse 7, you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. In other words, you let us experience the consequence of sin. Sin undoes us. It uncreates us. It is a power. Here it's personified with breath and as a hand. It's a dominating tyrant. Our choices form us into people who have no other choice but to be who we've chosen to be. That's the power of sin. Our choices form us into people who have no other choice but to be what we've chosen to be. Here is Israel. And God has sentenced them to the consequence of being formed by their choices. Israel chose to sin. They chose to do so against God's clearly expressed will. And having chosen to sin, it became easier and easier to sin. Their hearts got harder and harder. Our hearts set on disobedience, progressively hardened against the way and the will of God. 
It says in the Bible of Pharaoh that he hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. Providence, sovereignty, and free will, they all play together in that. We choose to sin and God chooses to hand us over to that. We choose to harden our hearts and God's judgment on us is to let us go through that. Like Israel. We cannot say, I can't help it. As an act of evading responsibility. The fact that we can't help it. Is because we put ourselves in a place. Where we can't help it. There is no place to stand. Where you can say this is not my fault. The habits and sin in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm not responsible for. Because I can't help but choose them. Look it's only in America. That you think the lack of a choice. Means you escape responsibility. That's a new thought. And even though it's logical to us, it's only logical to us because our plausibility structure says it's logical. It is not a piece of the universal logic. Now, this is a conundrum. We're wasting away in our sins because we won't turn to God, but our sins make us lethargic so we don't turn to God. So what do we do? Look at the end of verse 5. Shall we be saved? You can see them pulling their hair out. Wait a minute. I can't choose, but... I'm damned. And I can't get out of this because all of my choices have made me into this and now I have no other choice but to live by the habits I've created. It's hopeless. Sin is a life-ending cocktail. It disconnects us from the source of life and we wither and we lose our longing for God to even do anything about it. And yet into this hopelessness, there breaks a ray of hope. Look at verse 8. But now. Oh, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Based on that, based on that, be not so terribly angry with us. Remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, based on the fact that God is our father, will you please look at us again? Can you see your child? Suffering under your discipline of them. Crying out to you based on nothing else. Mom. Dad. And longing for you to just look at them again. The whole chapter. All of its sadness. Everything turns on the first two words of verse 8. But now. No matter that she's withered, no matter that she's impure, no matter that she's ruined and trampled and shattered, no matter how hidden Yahweh has become, Israel can still call to God she, because Israel has a trump card. She can call out to him as dad, as father. And it cuts through the entire conundrum. For Yahweh has made Israel... Yahweh has made Israel his. He has identified with Israel by taking on her name. I am the God of Israel. And finally by taking on her flesh. The God who formed Israel as a potter forms a pot. As as Yahweh made Adam in the garden. He can remake Israel. The father who made Israel can remake her. See she, she can't be just like. She's not a broken bone. She's a leaf disconnected from the tree. What is the only option here? The only option is the miracle of resurrection. The only option here is to be remade. 
He can remake her. He can mold her again into a vessel. He can breathe again the life, the breath of life into her. He can robe her again in the robes of righteousness and beauty and glory and goodness. So there's this movement in Isaiah 64 from the grim confessions of verses 6 and 7 to verse 8 with its cry, But now you are my Father. And that's the basis of our Advent prayers. God, I'm your child. And it's the only ground I have to stand on. Rescue me. Restore me. Remake me. So, you... And me, let's call out to God during Advent. Over the course of the next four weeks, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, let's prepare. But let's think of preparation in this instead of as buying gifts. Gift buying is an important thing. But don't let that dominate what it means to get ready for Christmas. Let's identify each one of us as individuals. And us as a church, let's identify the specific behaviors and habits and attitudes that are an offense to God. That cut against life. Let's identify the actions and reactions that cut us off from the source of life. God's power is unleashed in us when we step toward him in faith. When we take the hammer in hand and we do what we need to do in order to crucify our self-will that is against God. Let's cry out to God because unless God intervenes and breaks these patterns, it is a one-way street. If God doesn't choose to intervene, we will continue in our sin and its consequent alienation from God, from creation, from one another, from our truest selves. But this is the rub. There, this is not merely a matter of God deciding whether or not he will intervene. The question is, will you cry out for him to intervene? Will you rouse yourself? Will you actually do something in the next four weeks where you are really crying out to God to intervene in the specific brokennesses in your life? Will you cry out like the Galilean man did hundreds of years after Isaiah 64? Will you say, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief? Are you willing to have certain patterns of behavior in your life broken? Or do you want God's blessings While you continue to do what you've always done. Too often we want to have our own way and God's blessing. And that can never be. Now this is the heart of Advent. It's a time to wait. But not a passive waiting. Advent is a time of active waiting. It's a time when we call out for God to break into our lives. To break into our selfish behavior patterns. To shatter our self-centered pursuits. To soften our hardened hearts. It's time for repentance. It's a time to recognize our sin and our needs. It's a time to learn from Israel how to long for God and to pray for Christ to be birthed anew in our hearts. It's a time to renew our journey away from the old life, the life where we live under the power of evil. It's a time to renew our journey to the new life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Advent is a season for you to assess the current state of your faith. 
It's a time for you to assess the current state of your living. It's a season for you to commit to an unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ who died for you to pay for your sins, to reconcile you to the Father and to His creation and to yourself to make all things new. Now, for some of us, this commitment needs to occur for the very first time. In a room this size, there are people who have never done that. You can sit through life, your whole church, your whole life, and never reach, rouse yourself to lay hold of God. Did you, read, did you hear that in the verse? Rouse yourself to lay hold of God. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, man, it's a good time to do it. Now is the time to do it. And if you know you need to, but you don't want to, that's all right. Just tell God that. I know I should ask you to rescue me, but I love the way I'm living. Just start there. If that's all you got, start there. Take a step in faith. Even if it's faith, just the amount of the fingertips, if that's all. If you're 90% doubt and only a few percent faith, well, leverage that. Turn to Christ. Reach out to him in faith. For some of us, it's a commitment that we've done many times before. And we need to do again. Let's pray.